Whoa, what the hell? The hell? Yeah, what the hell? The hell. What the hell, man? What hell? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the Pie Factory Podcast. Mmm, pie. see lines, so I think that that means that I'm recording. Yay. rock a baby. Hi, this is Jimmy G, your singing podcast host. And when you want a deal on a brand new podcast, come see the Pie Factory podcast in Elk Grove Village or wherever the hell they were. So, hi, no. Sean. How are you? Hi, this is Sean, where you, you always save, save more money. money. Yes. That Nothing was in but- Elk Grove Village. Or wait, wait, was it? No, no, you're right, you're right. Uh, Schmerler Ford was Elk Grove Village at 83 in Tui. And, and Slozy Edelson was uh, York and Roosevelt Rose in Elmhurst. You, you sure it wasn't that 710 East Green in Bensonville near O'Hare? Well, no, because these cars are worth a lot more money. Oh, yeah, that's true. So, hi, welcome once again. Another Pie Factory, you know, the drill. Yeah, episode 85, yeah. 85, that's ooh, only 15 episodes to the big 100. Ooh. Probably hitting that around the sum, uh, around next summer. But of course, because of the way this podcast went, I don't know what that even means at, at this point anymore. Because like most podcasts, at least most that we listened to, we had an introductory episode. That's true. And we've had special episodes and we've had... We've had two-parters. Two-part episodes. We, we had one two-parter that... That's we, true. We, we called it episode 15 in both parts, but I don't know. The one, okay, the one that we actually number, a hundred. Hundred? Hundred. H-U-N-D-R-E-D. Hundred. Oh, really? I thought it spelled H-U-N-N-E-R-T. No, that's hundred. Oh, I see. This is the Chicago linguistics. Oh, whatever. Definitely. Yes. So well, speaking of Chicago oh. uh, linguistics, as you Nothing. know, something that I tried this year because I wanted to come up with some kind of way to sign off. Because I remember when Katie Couric started work, I mentioned this before, but I remember when Katie Couric started working at CBS, when she did the evening news there, the big question was, what is her sign off going to be? Because some people would say peace and Walter Cronkite would say, that's the way it is. And then he'd say the date. Dan Rather used to say courage. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. So what I came up with was at least for this year, I would end every episode with an oxymoron. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, what I have for tonight, I don't know if it necessarily counts as an oxymoron. It's more like something that you don't think would possibly exist. Hmm. So, spoiler alert. And speaking of oxymorons, I also want to thank uh, Chris Plus Plus for providing the oxymoron that I used in episode 83. What was that oxymoron? I don't remember. You know what? I think I may have a, a, a fallback oxymoron for tonight if the one we have don't uh, hmm. don't work. So uh, I mean, I'm going to just type that in my notes here. There we go. So, Sean, what so, games have you been playing? What have you been up to? What have you been doing? All right. Hither, um, hither I'll try to answer those questions in the order in which I was asked. Aside, of course, from the games that we're going to talk about this morning, what games have I been playing? I've mainly been practicing Ms. Pac-Man Turbo. Why is that? Because I want to do better. There's no other reason? Okay, fine. I'm bitter. Well, we know that. I'm bitter because my 760,000 house high at the Underground Retrocade was knocked down to number two. By somebody who's not even a regular patron there. He was he was just on a trip and he walked in and he got 885-something thousand on it. Say, I think I'll put Sean in his place today. Exactly. 
Exactly. And uh, the thing about that is I know exactly why he got that much more than I did on my score. He and I both had something. First of all, he was trying to go for the world record. I wasn't. I was just trying to knock out. uh, I was just trying to get the house high when I did mine, which I did Mm -hmm. by a couple hundred thousand points. The reason that my score was significantly lower was that the guy who beat me, and I forgot his name. I think it's Dave something or other. He had a grouping strategy so that every time he had the Energizer, he could get all four of the monsters or at least come close to it. After a while, I can't do that. So I've been trying to practice some grouping strategies. I think I have something down for the third maze that'll at least improve me a little bit. And the reason that my game came to an end is because I encountered a bug that resets the machine. It's a known bug in Ms. Pac-Man. He got the same bug, but yet he scored 125,000 more than I did. I'm sure a big part of it is that he was able to eat most of the monsters when it was possible to do that. And another part of it might've been that he got more bananas and pears than I got. Because once you get past the banana, the first banana level, all the bonus prizes are random. So if you're having a particularly bad day, you could get nothing but cherries the rest of the game. Hmm. If you're having a particularly good day, you might get a lot of nanas in the game. Nanners. See, that's why I like Junior Pac-Man, because once, and actually Pac-Man's the same way too. Once you reach the 5,000 point prize, it's not random. It's the same one over and over and over. So your score Mm -hmm. will build up over more quickly. That is kind of one of the bad things about uh, Ms. Pac-Man for those who play to that level, which I am not one. Yet. No, I I probably never will be. Mainly because I just don't play Ms. Pac-Man. Yet. Yet. Um, Okay. Uh, I've yet to play Ms. Pac-Man, I guess. I don't know. Yet. Yeah. So have you been playing anything else? Oh, whatever. I think I played Draconian mm-hmm. on uh, the 2600 because I'm really getting, seriously getting super into Bosconian like I never have before. Oh, part, pardon me, Gre- as I never have before. Uh-huh. When there's a complete thought, you use as if it's just like, yeah, screw it. So that's the answer to your first question. Your second question was, uh, how are you, I think? And I'm a little better. My neck problem is definitely getting better. Like I can actually clear my throat in my office chair that I'm sitting in right now Yay. without much pain at mm-hmm. all. Oh, you want to talk about some pain? Ah, we'll get to that in a minute. Oh, hmm. And I'm able to ride my bike at will. But what does Will have to say about it? Well, I don't know because he's still stuck in the upside down. Oh, good save. Good reference too. I need to watch season two. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, you haven't? Oh, man. Yeah, I have to re-up Netflix, and I haven't seen uh, season five of BoJack Horseman either. Okay, I'm finally getting to get that show. I love that show. It doesn't go very many places until, like, the second half of the first season. The the show is either downright hilarious or downright depressing. It's very rarely any combination of Mm. the two. I just started season two, Mm -hmm. and I'm enjoying it. I don't know if I love it, but I like it. Mr. Peanut Butter is is my hero, I have to say. Really? I like Mr. Peanut Butter. <laughs> and uh, so your third question was, uh, what's what, what's happening? What have you been up to? Uh, well, the answer to that is uh, I've been up to six foot two, which is what I've been at for several years now. Mm. And, uh, and again, I've been riding my bike again pretty regularly, which I wasn't able to do a couple of months ago because of my neck injury, but now So you've been are... eating fiber before you go out on your bike then, huh? Oh yeah. 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 Oh, very good to know that you're taking care of your colon health. E- exactly. Exactly. The more you know. 
And I almost got uh, right hooked by somebody who wasn't using a turn signal. And uh, so people that was in the fun. Chicago area don't use their turn signals. No, especially in Rogers Park. I think I think in Rogers Park, which is the northernmost neighborhood of Chicago, I think there's actually a local ordinance in which you're not allowed to use a turn really? signal. Yeah. Ooh, I'll have to keep that in mind. Yeah. So next time you're hanging out at Loyola, keep that in mind. I will. Yeah. Thank you for the heads up. Yeah. So, um, I guess I should ask you the same questions. So the same questions you asked me, consider them asked to you. Well, what have I been playing? Uh, I've been playing a lot of things, still doing the, uh, beta testing for the 5,200, Mr. Do, but I think that's, uh, I don't know if there's really more I can see on it. Uh, I've played a little bit more on my 7,800. Um, but like I said, I think I developed a problem after installing the, uh, the AV mod. So I might have to have somebody look at it and I just can't afford to do that right now. Uh, but I have still been enjoying my uh, 65XE. And um, just going through the list of games at random. And there's one on there called Phobos. Well, on my Uno card, I have some Infocom text adventures like, you know, Zork, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And one game they put out was called Leather Goddesses of Phobos. And I'm like, eh, I don't really want to do a text adventure, but I like, oh, I'll load this up anyway. So I'm playing it. And it looks like it's a freaking sequel to Caverns of Mars. Really? Instead of like, uh, like I don't know, six, seven zones like that has, it looks like it's got like a hell of a lot more, like 20, 26, that neighborhood. And, and the reason I say that is because they're not numbered, they're lettered. And um, overall, I think the game is a lot more fun than Caverns of Mars. And I loved Caverns hmm. of Mars. I remember way back uh, when I was a kid, we would get the, uh, the Christmas catalog from Montgomery Wards and they had a section for Atari Computers. And I was always drooling over the Caverns of Mars pictures. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I got to play this game. And I never played it until I got a 600XL years ago, which you now own, which we go on and on about uh, at infinitum. But um, Friday and or Sunday, I really need to take that thing and just work with it, you know. There's a lot of good stuff on that thing you're missing out on. But um, not so missing playing, out on an AV port. It, it doesn't have a, unlike the other Atari XL computers, it does not have the standard RCA output ports. It just has huh. the RF modulator. Interesting. I yeah. did not remember that. So at any rate, so I've been playing Phobos and it's a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying that. And um been going through and uh, playing a lot of paddle games on it. There's a bunch of Arkanoid clones. There's mm-hmm. a more recent one, which Oh, is I need decent. to play me some Arkanoid. We we need to put that on the list. I think it is actually. Good. But um so I'm playing a bunch of those and um there's one that's uh a more recent one, which seems okay, but it's like it, it's flickery and and slow. But there's some that are less um, graphics intensive, which play a lot better. And uh, I've encountered like three or four direct Arkanoid clones on the thing, so I've been playing that. Um, I'm still playing Scramble on it. Scramble on it's a lot of fun. Hmm. If you have a 65XE or an Atari 5200, you got to pick that up. That's it. You know what? If you have a 65 XE, a 5200, or a 7800, or a 2600, yeah. all those versions of Scramble are excellent for the systems they're on. They really all are. What about us plebs who only have a 600 XL? Well, you can use that also. Well, then again, I also have a 7800 and well, a 2600, even though I don't really use it as much. But You know what? That would be interesting to get all four versions, seeing as I've got a 7800 uh, 8-bit computer and a 5200 here. Yeah. The 5200 version and the 8-bit version are the, basically the same. Of course. Um, I do like the fact that they have the uh, have it to where 
You can make the tunnels bigger to compensate for the 5200 controller. Um, so that's uh, going to be a nice thing. Yeah, and you actually can also access that on the 8-bit computer version. But um, it would be nice to do a head-by-head -head -head comparison of them and see which <laughs> one is the better. But they're all really, really good. If you haven't played them, uh, go to Atari Age and download them, buy them, whatever. It's one of those cases where the authors don't mind if you download it and emulate it. Oh, but, cool. You know, but uh, would also like you to purchase it. Oh, and, yeah, of course. Uh, and so uh, definitely make the purchase if you can. If you can't, they still want you to enjoy it. So that's that. What have I been up? What? Let me see. What was the next question? Uh, I don't remember. Was it what have uh, I been up how, to or what uh, am I how doing? How are you or something-ish? Oh, yeah. Went to the emergency room over the weekend. Over this what? last weekend. Uh-huh. Uh, no, what is today? The 30th, 29th, 28th. That would have been the 27th of October. Um, yeah, I was doing something really stupid. I was raking leaves. Hmm. Yeah, and what happened was we had a, one of those huge garbage cans that have, like, a, a lid attached to it. You know, like, the ones that you see, like, in the city, you know, that the, the garbage company gives you. Yeah. Well, now, out in the rural areas, we have to use them. But um, I was moving it, and I didn't shut the lid. The lid is attached to it on a hinge. And what happened was is I tripped over the lid, and the garbage can, the edge of the garbage can came flying, and it hit me smack in my forehead. Yeah. Really long gash like about four inches across my forehead like it's above the hairline and then I, it hit so hard and i fell back on the ground really hard and gave myself a mild concussion and mm. uh so yeah that's always fun and uh yeah i was in some serious pain and Ugh. um when i got up to be taken to the emergency room i noticed uh, that i was laying in a pool of my own blood that's Ugh. never happened before yeah so um, I hope you all are enjoying some snacks while you're uh, listening oh, to yeah. this podcast. You know what? It's interesting, though. I should be talking about stuff like that because tomorrow is Halloween. Of course. And, and uh, by the way, in the interest of getting both sides of the story and finding a truth in the middle, mm -hmm. what about the assertion that there was a sign on the thing that you ignored? Yeah, there's a, there's a, there was instructions on how to use the garbage can printed on the garbage can. Oh. Yeah. But uh, I was only going to move it a few feet, you know, like about 10 feet maybe. 20 feet tops, but yeah, so I'm not going to do that again. So what have we learned? Stop doing household chores. Exactly. Don't do anything and you won't get hurt. So, okay. And since tomorrow is Halloween, I got to talk about this. It's a mm -hmm. geography corner with Jim here. In the movie Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers, doesn't matter if it's the theatrical or the producer's cut. It's still a pretty bad movie, whichever way you go. But the producer's cut is slightly better, but that's not saying much. There's a scene in the bus station in Haddonfield, Illinois. And, uh, well, first of all, and I think it was Halloween 2, they tell us that Haddonfield, Illinois is on State Route 17, which uh, is about 20 miles south of me. Well, in Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, what happens is in the bus station, there's a scene where you can see a map uh, of the bus route through Illinois from Chicago to, I think you only see down to, to just south of Bloomington. And it goes, you know, Chicago, Romeoville, Joliet. Sure. I don't know if remember Wilmington's on, Wilmington's on there. Braidwood, Dwight, Michael, Smith's Grove, Haddonfield, and Pontiac. Well, where Pontiac would be on that map is about uh, ten miles south of State Route 17. So uh, maybe maybe seven miles, maybe seven miles. Uh, actually, closer to where the town of Odell, Illinois, sits. But I was looking at that and looking down the map and goes a little further. The next town south is Funk's Grove. Oh, uh, yes, and you've mentioned them before in the podcast. 
The problem is, is that Funk's Grove is south of Bloomington, not north of it. And it's such a tiny town. Why would a, there be a bus stop? If you're going to stop anywhere, you would go to the next town, which is much bigger, which is McLean. So, yeah. So I just had to point out these geographic inaccuracies in the Halloween movie franchise. So maybe sometime I'll go into my... Uh, geographic inaccuracy rant about the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, boy. yeah, I think you already did that one. Did I? I may have. I don't. I well, you know, have. if you did, it was during our first year. You might want to revisit it. So Spe- your mention of Romeoville made me think of Bolingbrook. Uh-huh. And didn't we get some news recently about Bolingbrook? Yes, we did. Oh, good. Prince Arcades, which is a major, is which is a local, I don't know if distributor, but refurbisher and repairer of arcade games. And uh, many of the local arcades uh, use them. Like, uh, I know Galloping Ghost does. Oh, I big think time. Underground Retrocade might. I think so. But, uh, yeah, so they're, they're pretty big in the biz in the area. Uh, well, they're opening their own arcade at the Promenade in Bolingbrook, which is at, uh, I think it's, it's either Bouton Road or 75th Street and Interstate 355, which is the Veterans Memorial Tollway. So, um yeah, they're going to be opening in about halfway through November, I oh, think. Oh, that's soon. Yeah, and uh, they are hiring. I think I know which part of the promenade the Prince Arcade is going to be in because in one picture you could see the Bass Pro Shops behind uh-huh. them. And if it's where I think it is, it is down from the same hallway from BD Mongolian, which is a, like, uh, what do they call it? It's like one of those Mongolian uh, buffet things where you go to the bar and you pick up all your vegetables and noodles and meats or whatever, and then they put it all on this big, flat-top, round Mongolian grill, I guess they call it. And mm. It's not all you can eat, though. You can only go up, like, once or twice. So load your plate. Ah. And um, it, the place is good. It's just expensive, I guess. But So, but yeah, I think they're in that wing of the mall, uh, which is the side-facing Interstate 355. So uh, there's that. But, uh, yeah, very excited. They are actually right now putting out a call for uh, people to contact them for jobs. And um, I won't be, unfortunately. So uh, when uh, the guys from uh, Tenpence uh, come down to the Chicago area, we might have another arcade to, uh, to take well, them to. You just might, yeah. You just might. And um, the one thing about this place is it's actually closer to me than Pixel Blast is, or closer to my work than Pixel Blast is, so I might actually head up to this place a little more often. And uh, it's just a shame because I love Pixel Blast, but Pixel Blast is great. Oh, like I like I said, posted on Facebook. It's oh, what did I say? I I I, I described it. Jejun was it? I think that was the word you used. It was um, aubergine. Pixel Blast is intimate but not crowded. Oh yeah, it, it, it's an intimate place, but it's not crowded. They get a lot of people in there, but it just does not feel like it. It's a I love Pixel Blast. I, I just wish I could. I just wish I could go to all the arcades more. That's really my problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's an issue of money. Last time I went, because I won a free pass, but I went with a friend of the show, uh, Mike Bowler, and uh, we had a good time. But uh, might hit somewhere up this week sometime. But well, I'm going to hit up Underground Retrocade. I know. Uh, you were saying that, and why is that again? Because well, let's face it, no one's going to. People aren't going to hear this until well after it's over. Ah, true. Extra Life this year, I'm participating, except I'm not doing the 24 hours straight thing. I'm going to split it up over a few days. So Underground Retrocade, I'm going to do what I've been wanting to do at Underground Retrocade for so long, and that is go there when it opens and leave when it closes. I've never done that. 
I've wanted to do that, but it's just, I don't know if I have the uh, attention span, stamina, whatever. Not getting bored is ism, I guess, of going to, to an arcade for that long. Well, yeah, I mean, I had a little bit of concern for that, too, because it's like, okay, what if I get tired of playing games? Well, I have some impotence with I, I have some impetus with this. And the impetus that is that you don't have kids. it is for the children. It is for Lurie Children's Hospital in downtown Chicago. And um, I'm taking donations for Lurie. And my donation page will be at piefactorypodcast.com slash extra life. And I'll put that in the show notes via a link of some kind. Even after it's all over, which is probably when you're all hearing this, they're still taking donations, I think, until the end of the year. My goal is to raise 500 bucks. And how far along are you? Um, I am at $129 right now. 129 huh? 129 and a few cents as well. And we've, I've, I've had some, uh, some very generous people. Uh, our friend Eugenio donated. Uh, Bobby Adad Moore. I think uh, Sean Holly. Thank you, guys. Bobby's donated to my Bike MS uh, thing the last couple of years, so that's cool. I'm just going to keep hitting him up for money and just tell him that I'm... <laughs> hey, Bobby, I got a new charity. Uh, I'm working with Unwed Mothers. Just helping them get Steve. their start. <laughs> yeah, Bobby, would you care uh. to donate to the Human Fund? In fact, you know what? I'm actually going to figure... I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to see who did donate, so... Would you like to donate to the International Society for putting things on top of other things? I'm going to see whom I can thank. Uh, let me see. Oh, the Fitchell family, uh, or fi the Fitchell, Fictal. I'm not sure how it's, I'm sorry, folks. Courtesy of the Underground Retrocade patrons Facebook page. Thank you so much. Uh, Steve Steiner. Thank you. And, and yeah, I can, I can confirm, uh, Sean Holly and Bruce Widmer. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you, Bruce. Bruce is a, is another frequent Underground Retrocade person. Uh, and he will murder anybody at Mr. Do. <laughs> the man is freaking, I mean, he, he reaches like three digit scene numbers. Practically here. I am thinking I'm hot with my 110,000. Meanwhile, he's getting like 74 million. So yeah. Does that answer my question? That uh, might. <clears throat> so yeah, donate. There's a lot of people asking for donations for things, uh, because we got Movember coming up. Yep. And um, friend of the show, uh, Tim Evans uh, from Ooh, yeah, let's Podcast his, Brothers. Uh, thing too. Uh, he's uh, asking for donations. Uh, Ferg from the 2600 Game by Game is also doing uh, uh, the uh, push-ups, Extra Life Marathon. Ferg was kind enough to link mine in his show notes, so it's only fair that we link his and ours. Indeed. And uh, so there's a lot of that going on for a good reason. Oh, uh, November is also National Novel Writing Month, so if you're going to write a novel, November is the month to do it. So get started. Oh, my on friend it. just uh, published one. Oh yeah, yeah. My friend Carrie, whom you didn't meet at Shea Dauber because, but you met her husband. She published a book called uh, Oh God, I forgot <laughs> what it was. We ordered a copy too. It's about high school band for one thing, or it involves high uh -huh. school band. I suddenly forgot the name of the damn book. It's called Forward March. It was actually released. Actually, to the day we're recording it, October 30th is the release date. So I'm going to link that in the show notes. Forward March. Forward March. So, yeah. Okay. Cool. And, yeah. I think that's uh, all the uh, small talk, the jibber-jabber, if you will. Jibber-jabber. God, my throat's very dry. So uh, I think we should uh, just chug along here, don't you think? Yeah. Ch speaking of chug, I really want to drink something, man. Oh, really? Yeah. 
In fact, you know, while we're at it, might as well transition over to Sean's drinking arena. Now, I'm trying something different Sean's this time. Sean's drinking arena. Uh, Jimmy G, you know what I have to drink tonight? What have you to drink tonight? We now have Melba's Fixins Cherries and Cream Soda. Ooh, that looks good. Uh, basically because I ran out of all the Lester's Fixins drinks that my uh, local place uh, supplies. And uh, I want to try the weirder flavors, but this promises to not be weird and it smells pretty good. But the thing is, I also tried the peanut butter and jelly, the PB&J, a couple of years ago. That was actually a Lester's Fixins. I thought it was a Melba's Fixins because Melba tends to have more sweet drink um, more desserty. Yeah. More desserty kind of drinks. So who knows? This might be really terrible. So let me try this cherries and cream soda, courtesy of Melba's fixings. It doesn't taste as good as it smells. Hmm. Oh, you know what this tastes like? This tastes like liquid Twizzlers. Ooh, that could be good. And you know, it probably tastes really, really good. If it's super cold, if it, this is not super cold, it's been you know, sitting out for You should a get while. a scoop of ice cream with that. Ooh. Well, the thing is, you know where I got this and all my other fixings drinks? Where's that? Lickety Split Ooh. on uh, Broadway and Glen Lake on the north side of Chicago. That is a frozen custard place. So what I could probably do is just get some custard. There you go. And then mix the two together, you know? You know, I've had, uh, I haven't seen it very many places, but I have had uh, blueberry cream soda before, which was really good. Ooh, I'll bet. I'll bet. It's very good. This is going to be a short edition because that's all I have to say, really, you know? It's good. It's good. It's not great, but it's good. It's good. But yeah, you're probably right. It probably tastes really good with ice cream. Yeah. So we need to do that. We need to get to, what was the one uh, that I tried that you hadn't tried? Um, you had uh, ranch dressing. Oh, you didn't try the ranch one. No, I've, I've not seen it since. Well, I know of a few places to pick it up. Uh, yeah, so there we go. Uh, that was Sean's drinking arena. Um, we do have some feedback we should address. We do? Yeah. Before we go on, though, uh, just a note to uh, Jimmy Brazell. Um, apologies, uh we were reading your email last episode, and due to some technical glitches or whatever, uh, 46 seconds of your email were cut short or cut out accidentally. Yeah, what we'll do is we we'll, we're going to sit down and try to figure out which portion it was so we can re-record that. Yeah, just just that portion. So even we can if it address cut, it. Yeah, even if it cut out like mid-syllable, we'll just start there. Yeah, and uh, we do have uh, some feedback. And by the way, that counts as... Uh, Arata, I think. Uh, so, hey, sure. it's time for Addenda and Arata. Oh, man, some more Addenda, though. Oh, you know what? One thing I did mm-hmm. forget to say that I've been playing is I purchased Grand Theft Auto V. Oh, really? And the LSPDFR, which is the Los Santos Police Department Fire and Rescue plug-in for it and been, uh, been exploring the town, and that is seriously... Even if you don't play the game, you do have to play the first few missions. But even if you don't really play the game, you can have just fun really just exploring that thing. I just I drove a, a police cruiser up to the top of a mountain, and it was just so much fun. Uh, I accidentally <laughs> flipped the police cruiser, and I got out of my vehicle to run back to an ATV I'd seen you know, a little ways back on the road. Mm. And uh, I got eaten by a mountain lion. <laughs> so that was fun. It's a really amazing game. It's on Steam right now for 30 bucks, hmm. And uh, 
So there you go if you want to check that out. I've so, never played a GTA game. I've played a couple, just a little bit. I've got Vice City here, which I've played a little bit. But uh, this this game is so realistic looking that you swear that it's all like Laserdisc, like actual mm-hmm. like actual image. It's very realistic, and it's, that's pretty awesome. Mm. There's some, some addenda, and this goes way back to our Frogger and Asteroids episode from our first year. I'm really realizing that we don't we didn't really delve into the game very much when we first started out. We just kind of like wing it. We didn't we didn't really research a heck of a lot like we do now. And man, we miss so much with Frogger. Like so much background and uh one thing I want to mention right here is uh somebody has an arcade Frogger out. It's all the rage now to have these little mini versions of arcade machines. And on somebody's site that was selling these things, it said that um, Sega Gremlin merged for the purpose of distributing Frogger in the United States, or at least it implied that, which is dead wrong because Sega Gremlin happened in 1979, and Frogger didn't come out until late 1981 in Japan. So unless they had some kind of way to see two years into the future, that's a bunch of bull hockey. They have the power of ESPN. And they also credited Robert Pappas, teenage Robert Pappas, as a developer, which I don't think is right, because why would a Japanese company have a teenager on their staff who obviously is uh, uh, Greek at some some level? Pappas is a very Greek name. Uh, It's theoretically possible it could have been done, but I think the reason that the description credited him is because he actually programmed the Trash 80 version of Frogger. Uh-huh. The official licensed Trash 80 version of Frogger, he did that one. And I think his name got jumbled up in all the stories. But there's a lot more, and I'm going to do some shameless self-plugging here. I'm not going to get into all of it right now. If you want to hear more, listen to episode 47 of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast which is available right now as you all listen. There you go. So, yeah, craziness. So what about you there, uh, Jimmy G? Uh, what about me? Addenda, errata? No, I got nothing. Well, you know what I got? What do you got? I got email from TrekMD. Oh? Yeah, and I think you did too. I've got that one. I thought we read that. No, we didn't read the one that says, hello, Sean and Jim. I hope you're doing well before I talk about the games. I want to answer one question you posed to me on the prior episode. Oh, yes. No, we didn't talk about this. We did postpone recording this one week, though, didn't we? And so. Yes. And cue the Sean was right theme song. Sean was right. TrekMD says, and I quote, my medical specialty is endocrinology. There you go. If you don't know what that is, um, he, he explained it to me before and I forgot uh, it is the specialty that deals with the glandular diseases. The bread and butter of the specialty are diabetes and thyroid disease. I also wanted to comment about acetaminophen. It only takes a few extra tablets to damage the liver. In fact, in Europe, acetaminophen is not even an over-the-counter medication huh. like it is here in the U.S. In Europe, you need a prescription to get, and this was done precisely because of people attempting suicide with it. Oh, man. Again, the more you know. He goes on to say that he's catching up. He's only got 13 episodes left. And so he's commenting on the different games, starting with Donkey Kong Jr. And he says, uh, I remember seeing this machine at timeout for the first time and wondering what it was all about. The hokey pokey. Um, timeout is probably Eugenio's equivalent of uh, Aladdin's castle for us. 
But I think we probably assumed that by we now. We very much assumed that. Yeah, when I walked up to the machine, I saw Donkey Kong was in a cage and that the player controlled the baby version of Donkey Kong and that Mario, I don't think he had that name then, was the bad guy? Hey, what happened? Wasn't he the good guy? I guess he trapped Donkey Kong when the original game finished and here comes the uh, I see what he did there. Here comes the son to save daddy. So I put a quarter in and gave it a try. Controlling Junior was a bit odd, but I managed to get the hang of it. He put hang in quotes. <laughs> enough to survive the first screen. It took several quarters for me to learn the game and enjoy it, but I did manage to get through three screens most of the time. That's one screen more than I can get through. Hmm. I saw that Coleco was going to release a home version, and I really wanted to get it, and I admit that I was impressed with the fact that it had three screens I could play. Sure, they looked awful and sounded about as awful, but I could play Donkey Kong Jr. at home. When I got an Atari 7800, this was one of the titles I immediately purchased. And I was enthralled with how great the game looked. The sounds weren't as good as the arcade, but it sounded better than the 2600 version. Impressive when you consider it's still the same Tia chip. Uh, Tia is the chip that produces the sound of both the Atari 2600 and 7800. Mm -hmm. It had all the screens and played pretty good. I got the NES version years later as well, which I thought was pretty good and sounded better than the 7800 port. But that was not entirely unexpected. After all, it was a Nintendo game on a Nintendo console. I did try the Intellivision version once, and that was that. <laughs> it is. I've, I've never seen the Intellivision version myself, personally. Uh, someone is working on a new homebrew version of the game that looks fantastic, and he has a link, and we'll throw that in the show notes. I've not tried the Atari 8-bit version yet. I need to get it for my XEGS or perhaps the 5200 conversion. The XEGS version of, or the 8-bit version, if you will, of uh, Donkey Kong Jr. is really choppy. Really? Yeah, hmm. it, it's, it looks good, it sounds good, but the choppiness kind of ruins it for me. So that's my opinion on that. Hmm. And I'm not a fan of the 7800 Donkey Kong Jr. Uh, there is the sound issue, but it, it still just doesn't seem right. Uh, there's just something about it. Although I th- think the 7800 Donkey Kong Jr. has all four screens. I know one of either Donkey Kong or Donkey Kong Jr. on the 7800, I believe I have. One of them has all four screens. I can't remember which one. I could be wrong on that. I could look it up. Yeah, you could. I could, but why would I? Yeah, and let's see. He talks about Gyrus, which is one of your particular favorites. Oh, yes. The one thing that attracted me to this arcade machine when they had it in timeout was the music. Oh, hell yes. I couldn't believe I was listening to classical music from an arcade machine as a full soundtrack. That was just awesome, and very different from what I'd seen until then. The game itself was also pretty cool, with the ship being in the outer perimeter while attacking the enemies that came forward. I always thought the joystick was an odd choice to control the game, though. I didn't play the game again until I saw the machine at Arcade and Pinball Expo in Fort Lauderdale many years later. I had completely forgotten about this game and never bothered to get one of the home ports. After playing the arcade again, I decided to see which of my retro consoles had a port, and I discovered the 2600 and 5200 had them, so I got them both. I was impressed with the 2600 version as it has the music, even if it is a bit out of tune. It doesn't look as nice, but the programmers at Parker Brothers did a really excellent job. The 5200 version looks and sounds better, as should be expected. Now, why wasn't this game made with a spinner controller? Mm-hmm. I also do have the game in the Konami Arcade Classics for the PlayStation, so I can play something more arcade accurate at home if I want to. 
I just have is not a huge fan of the 2600 version of Gyrus. And I have been playing the, uh, the 8-bit computer version of Gyrus, which is basically the 78 or the 5200 version lately. And um, I kind of dig it. I got a feeling, though, like anybody who plays the arcade version a lot and then goes to any of the home versions, it's going to be a letdown. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt, especially with the sound. But at the very least, the, the 8-bit and the 5200 has the, uh, the pokey to fall back on. So yeah. You yeah. got that. That's absolutely the truth. Now, if they made Gyrus for the Vectrex... I'm sure oh, you'd man. have arcade perfect sound. Oh, does it also use the same sound chip? I think so. Huh. I think so. So did you find anything out about... Uh, yeah, I was wrong. Uh, both of them have th- only three screens. Could we cue up the Jim is wrong music, please? Jim was wrong. You were wrong, Sanchez. You were wrong, and your name is stupid. Right. Don't get used to it. All right, Phoenix. This space shooter did catch my eye when Time Out had the arcade cabinet. It had those strange birds that pooped. I mean, shot the player, but with something that was different (laughs) from what I had seen before. The birds appeared in waves, either as small birds or eggs. The eggs hatching into these huge winged creatures was not something I had seen in a shooter before. And I liked that the birds had to be exactly shot in the center or they would simply regrow their wings. Oh, I hated that. I thought that was a great little intro. You know what that reminds me of? Uh, Underground Retrocade just got this. It's a really old Nintendo Space Invaders knockoff. I forgot what it's called, but it's very similar. It's like mm-hmm. you have like wide invaders, and if you don't hit them just in the center, they split Oh, I know apart. the game you're talking about. It's a fascinating game. I really enjoyed it very much. I forgot what it was called. Um, actually, I know a way I can find do, out. Do, do, do. I submitted a score for, for do, it on do. Orcade.com. Do, do, Last time I was there was do, do, Space do, do, Something do, do, or Other. Do, 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 do. Oh, it is a variation of Nintendo's Space Fever, which is a Space Invaders knockoff called SF High Splitter. The High Splitter variation is the one that has the uh, extra wide aliens that you have to hit right in the middle or they divide into separate aliens. But so uh, let's see, getting back to Trek MD. I really liked the animation when they were shot dead center, though. They split apart instead of just exploding. Something that I think is also cool is how your own ship moves and the fact that it has a shield. I'm still bitter about that, by the way. <laughs> not sure that helps all the time, but that was not a feature your ship had in games like Galaxian. Then there's the mothership screen. Not an easy one to survive. I, of course, got the only home port of this game that was made back then, the 2600 port. This happens to be a rather well-done version of the game, and even includes a simplified version of the mothership screen, which I can survive much better than on the arcade version. I wonder why this game was never ported to the 8-bit mm-hmm. computers of the 5200. It would certainly be doable. I do keep hoping someone ports the game to the 7800. Now, somebody did do a game for the 5200, and I'm trying to find out... Castle Blast. A game called Castle Blast, which is uh, based on the mothership screen of Phoenix. Uh, but it looks like it's based on the uh, 2600 phoenix mothership screen and that's all it is is a a battle against the mothership it doesn't have the rest of the game but that's the closest to a 5200 version and um it is does get middling reviews on uh, atari age granted there is only one review but still you got that but that's about it Hmm. um i'm surprised it hasn't been programmed for other systems as well that would have been a i think that would have been one of atari's bitter uh bigger hits if they'd put it out through atari soft for other consoles and stuff 
Yeah. I would love to see somebody homebrew a uh, 7800 version of it. I think you could do a really great job of Phoenix on the 7800. Sure you could. In fact, all you need to do is hack one of Bob DiCrescenzo's ports of uh, something else, probably. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, he talks about Star Wars. This game was the talk at school before I even got to see the machine. Everybody was talking about how great it was, and I could not wait for Friday night that week so I could go to timeout. When I finally saw the machine, I was blown away. It was a machine you sat in so you felt like you were really flying an X-Wing fighter. And see, the other really cool thing was how the graphics were made. Uh, Having some of the phrases from the characters in the game was also cool. What can I say? It was Star Wars. You bet that when I learned the game was coming home to the 2600, I was dead set on getting it. I knew it wasn't going to look as nice, but I didn't care. When I got the game, I was quite impressed with what Parker Brothers accomplished when porting the game. They actually managed to emulate the graphics from the arcade. The game wasn't as complex as on the arcade and there were no voices, but it didn't matter. Pretty much every phrase from the arcade was here, and the game certainly was challenging. Pretty much every phase from the arcade was here, and the game certainly was challenging. Years later, I got the 5200 version, but I was disappointed. It looks as arcade perfect as I think can be managed through raster graphics, and it has the music and sound effects. It does not have the speed, but that is understandable. The problem is the collision detection. It seems to be off, and that takes away from the fun of playing the game. So I find myself mostly playing the 2600 version at home when playing on Atari systems. I also have the 32X Star Wars arcade game, which is sort of an enhanced raster version of the game. It does look rather cool and is one of my most favorite 32X games. Also have the Nintendo GameCube title Star Wars Rogue Squadron 3 Rebel Strike. And of course, he ends with May the Force Be With You. And my response to that is, yeah, the 2600 version of Star Wars, which was called Star Wars the Arcade Game, by the way, looks really, really good. It's I was impressed with it myself. It looked good, but I, I hate... He's right about the collision detection on that, but I would go one step further saying it's pretty bad on all of them. I just discovered recently mm. that there was uh, not only... Uh, the Parker Brothers version for the Atari 8-bit computers, but there was a different version of the arcade game, officially licensed, released for the Atari 8-bit computers in Europe. By It was published by either U.S. Gold or Domark. I can't remember which off the top of my head. I might even be wrong on those. And the graphics are a little bit different. Seems to run a little bit faster, but it's still just as bad. Uh, it's not really a game that I think should have been attempted on home consoles, again, as we opined in that episode, it would have been great if uh, if Atari Soft had done, or Parker Brothers even, had done games on the Vectrex. Uh, that would have been perfect for the Vectrex. And unfortunately, nobody's homebrewed it yet. Nah. Oh, that's cliche. Yeah, let's, let's use the closet killer music. And as far as the 32X version Star Wars... That, I think, is based on the Sega Star Wars arcade game and not the Atari arcade uh, Star Wars game. Sega's put out Star Wars Arcade, Star Wars Trilogy Arcade, Star Wars Racer, and I think there was another Star Wars arcade game that Sega put out. They put out three or four Star Wars games in the arcade after the Star Wars trilogy from Atari. So, I think it's probably safe to say it's more based on that scene as it was on a Sega console. And let's see. Oh, speaking of Frogger, Eugenio also talks about his first experience at timeout. He says it was rather frustrating. Why? Well, why does a frog die when it jumps into the water? Why does a frog die when it goes into the water? What's the deal? I crossed the street and avoided all the cars. Oh, <clears throat> I crossed the street and avoided all the cars, so I assumed I had to avoid all the stuff in the river. So into the river I went and my frog died. I was like, what the heck? 
course, I was stubborn and I tried it a second time. Nope, the frog died. So I decided I would venture jumping on the turtles or the logs in the water. What do I do? I jumped on the turtles that start sinking, and before I knew it, I was dead again. There went the first quarter. I didn't give up, though. I figured it out, and I was going to get a frog all the way across, and I sure did with the next quarter. I did learn not to stay on the logs or the turtles when they got to the edge of the screen the hard way, but I did learn, and I eventually was hooked. In fact, I played it anywhere I'd see it. To use one of Sean's neologisms, the ubiquitacity. Did I ever say ubiquitacity? Um, I don't know. Maybe. I like that, though. The ubiquitacity of the game made it easy to find and play. When Parker Brothers released their 2600 port, I immediately got it, and I really enjoyed using the difficulty switches so my frog could warp from one side to the next. When reaching the edge of the screen. Yeah, ran out of breath. The game may have looked not quite the arcade, but it captures all the fun pretty much. That was my version of Frogger until I purchased the Supercharger. OMG. When I saw the official Frogger for the Supercharger, I just had to get it. Oh, that's a, that version's a lot of fun. I don't think it was much of an improvement, to be honest with you. But uh, anyway, that thing looked fantastic, and the truth is that it became my go-to version of the game. Not only did it look fantastic, it also sounded fantastic with, with all the musics, the sound effects, you name it. That's one reason I don't like the Supercharger version, because it tries to do the music in just one voice, and to me, it, it's just annoying. Yeah, but anyway, uh, D says, I should mention this version does not have the otter. Do any of the home versions really have the otter, though? I never see I the otter. I don't know. Now, I, I know that the, uh, the version on the Game Boy Advance does, but that's only because it's part of a Konami arcade pack, hmm. which I think those are all emulated. I'm pretty sure that sure. does. But I don't think I've seen that in any of the home versions. But then again, I probably might not have gotten that far enough in the game to see it. So there's that. Uh, since played the 5200 version in Television, Genesis, and the clones on the Vectrex and Jaguar. While the 5200 has a great looking game, the control system is a bit annoying and it lacks the in-game music. Yeah, because on the Frogger and Cubert in the 5200, you have to push the button when you move. Like every single time you have to push the fire button. Yeah, which I understand why they did. I think with Frogger, you could also use the keypad by itself. Yeah, I was going to say, that would be that would make more sense. Yeah, I think you can do that. Yeah. And the Intellivision version manages to look terrible and sound just as terrible. Uh, Genesis version is almost arcade perfect, but the colors are a bit off. Frogger on the Vectrex works pretty well and adds its own little twist to the game, and the Jaguar clone, Frog Z64, is a fun game, but it doesn't take full advantage of the hardware. But to be honest, nothing has replaced the official Frogger as my go-to version. Perhaps now that Froggy is going to be released for 7800, that Yay. will change. And he puts a link to uh, a YouTube video. I'm guessing it's going to be uh, Trevor's video. Probably. And he ends by saying, Ribbit, Ribbit, watch out for snakes. Watch out for snakes. <laughs> and I think, we, I think we mentioned this on the Frogger episode, but Frogger was the last officially released title for the Sega Genesis. That's right. Yep. That's right. Yeah, and that, was game that the game we were talking about that you found that you figured was literally l- released for just about every single imaginable platform? Yeah, it was even available on the Tommy Tutor computer. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So I, th- I think Frogger is the most widely ported video game of all time. Uh, oh my god! Yeah, if you're listening to this episode and you have an Atari seventy eight hundred, Froggy is about to be released for it after literally fourteen years of development. Now it's not an official port of Frogger. No, but. Uh, you need to get it. But it's um, it's the only console Frogger has not been on in yep. any way, shape, or form. And once that Unless you played it, the 2600 versions of it. And it's it. been on pretty much almost every, well, obviously not the Bally or the Fairchild Channel F, but uh, 
It's the most wi- it, it is the most widely ported game. It'll be the only. It'll be. Well, no, it wasn't on the the Lynx though. That's a handheld. It wasn't on the Jaguar. Well, never mind. It's still the most widely, probably the most widely ported video game of all time. Probably, yeah. Oh, by the way, Asteroids was in the same episode. He also goes in to talk about Asteroids, which he first experienced on the 2600, just like I did. Um, Let's see. I walked up to the arcade machine when I noticed it it at timeout, and I was utterly surprised. What was this thing with black and white graphics and only outlines? (laughs) Then I looked at the controls and only saw buttons. I scratched my head, put a quarter in, gave it a try. Well, the game may not have color, but it was pretty cool to play, even with buttons. Of course, I did not last as long as I did at home with my 2600 version, but I still played it in the arcade. As years went by, I acquired so many different versions or clones of Asteroids, I just cannot list them all, but I'm going to mention some. The next home version I got was the 7800 version. Awesome version. Love the pseudo 3D that the Asteroids are done with the spinning and their craters. Being able to play cooperatively is also unique to this version, and it makes the game more enjoyable. I got the Lynx version. Yes, the cart has both Asteroids and Missile Command. And I even got the prototype version, which plays a bit different, as you do have to move around to deal with the asteroids, deal with all oh, the I asteroids. I didn't know there was a prototype for the Lynx. Supercharger didn't see the release of a true asteroids game. Starpath wanted to avoid a lawsuit from Atari. Their clone suicide mission is really cool. Oh, I'll have to try that. Suicide mission is really cool and looks even closer to the arcade asteroids. Then came homebrews and hacks. I have three different hacks for the 7800, Space Rocks for the 2600, which is really awesome clone. I agree. Which is which is uh, my plan for my uh, my first 2600 homebrew, by the way. Ah. Meteors for the Intel. You'll, you will not be disappointed. Meteors for I've the Intellivision. I've seen video of Space Rocks, and after I saw the video, I'm like, why don't I own this already? Yeah, right. So. And the list goes on. Um, <laughs> I think I have a version, a clone of Asteroids for just about every console and handheld I own. Zevius. I'll take I'll, t- I'll take over from here. Thank you. Seeing as Zevius is one of, another one of my games, my very first experience with Zevius was with the Atari seventy eight hundred version. It was one of the first games I got for the system, and I had no clue what it was all about. That did not matter though, because I got hooked. What a fantastic game! I was not even aware of the arcade version for years, but that is just fine because I discovered this part is pretty much spot on. I did learn some new stuff about Zevius during the podcast. I did not know of the hidden items, the extra life in the river, and the bunker. I now have to play the game again so I can find those. I believe I've only seen one arcade machine for Zevius, but I don't even remember which at which event it was. I did try it out and was pleasantly surprised to see that, despite the Tia chip, the 7800 has reproduced the sound effects and music quite well. I would I would tend to agree with that. The music and sound effects for 7800 Zevius are good, especially the ping ping. When you shoot the... Uh, oh, you love that. Oh, God, I love that. That's one of my favorite, all-time all favorite arcade sound effects. Something that surprised me several years back was learning that the game was attempted on the 2600. It was even cooler to learn that it was Todd Fry who worked on it. I have tried the prototype, and it was really well done, well done, even if incomplete. I don't know if you're aware that an Atari Jaguar version is also in development. I have seen that on Atari Age. I did get to try this version a couple years ago, and I, it is also a very impressive part of the game. I hope it gets released sometime soon. So my final words on this game are that it is just zeviously great. Ah, I see what you did there. <laughs> you're our guest, so I'm not going to mock you. And you're, you're, you're a good person, so I'm not going to mock you. Now, if Sean had said that, I probably still wouldn't mock him because I'm scared of him. But <clears throat> number eight, Joust. Yeah, because I can do so much damage from 70 miles away from you. Actually, I should probably be more worried about, um, about Hyde. Oh, yeah. Yeah, hadn't thought about that. So we love Hyde. So, and, uh, sure num- we do. Number eight, Joust. This is another game that I saw at timeout that did not get much play from me. 
While the game was cool, it was not easy, and it felt like I was just wasting my quarters every time I tried to play it. So I mostly just watched others play waste theirs. I think there may have been only two or three people who could play Joust for a long time there. Despite the difficulty of the arcade, I did like the game itself, and I bought the 2600 version as soon as it was released. At least I would not be spending quarter after quarter while playing. The 2600 version may have simplified graphics, but it captures the gameplay well. I also have the 5200 and the 7800 versions, but I prefer the latter. By the way, I don't think that I've ever seen the Lava Troll, well, his hand, when playing this game. I have. On all versions of it, actually. Um, does it appear on any of the waves that have the open lava pits? Yes, it does. What I have seen is that darn pterodactyl. The position for killing that thing must be so exact that I've never figured out how to do it. I think I'm going to try out a hack sometime someone released on Atari Age that just has pet uh, taros and let you kill them over and over. I've killed more than my fair share of pterodactyls. Once you've figured out how to do it, it's it's still difficult, but it's a little easier. Yeah, it depends on like where you're at. I mean, it's you have to be just perfectly aligned with the, the pterodactyl's beak. Your chakras have to be aligned. Number nine, Mario Brothers. I was introduced to Mario Brothers by one of my cousins. She had tried it before and told me we could both play at the same time, which I thought was cool. The game was different from others I had played in the past, particular, particularly because of the cooperative play. I did mistakenly hit the POW block more than once, though, because of the skidding. Mario and Luigi do when changing directions. By the way, the POW block does regenerate after the second bonus level and every subsequent bonus level. Well, there you go. Very convenient as a way to strategize using it. I did play the game by myself several times in the arcade, but it was always more fun to play with someone else. In, oh, without a doubt, definitely. Once the 2600 version was released, I bought it and played it quite a bit, as did I. When I got a 7800, I got that version of the game, and it became my preferred version to play. I have the 5200 version, but I still prefer the 7800 port. I have never played the NES version, but I have seen videos of it. Interestingly, the 7800 and NES ports look very similar to each other, but the NES sounds closer to the arcade. I've got the 2600, the, uh, the Atari 8-bit version, and the 7800 versions of it. And I've played all three, and uh, I'd have to go with the 7800 version as my favorite as well. Although the 2600 version does have a special place in my little heart, because it's I, you know, I bought it years back. It was the first version of the game I ever had. So it's still weird to see Atari putting out <laughs> putting out Nintendo titles on its own consoles, but there yeah. you go. Number 10, Pac-Land. I first learned about Pac-Land when I bought my Atari Lynx, and to this day, it is my only experience with the game. I have seen the arcade machine at retro events, but I have never tried playing it. Why? This is one hard game. The Lynx version seems to be pretty arcade accurate, certainly in its visuals and sound effects. The cool thing about this game are that it is based on the cartoon from the 80s, but still maintains elements from the Pac-Man arcade game like the Energizers, the bonus items, and Ghost Monsters. The first time I played this game on the Lynx, I was quite surprised because back then I had never heard of the game and I actually thought it was an original title. Regardless, I thought it was rather cool being able to control Pac-Man in a totally different environment and doing more than just eating dots. As cool as it may be, though, this is not necessarily an easy game. Some of the jumps you have to make are rather spectacular and I've not fully mastered jumping over the larger lakes. I'll have to play it some more on the Lynx to see if I finally, do finally give it a try should the arcade machine make an appearance at PRGE or Free Play Florida this year. I think you told me how to get over that one jump, and I had been doing it wrong the whole time. I don't remember exactly what it was, but after, I'd have to go back to the little episode and listen, but I think as you after you jump, you keep hitting the you right. You keep hitting the run button. The run button, yeah. You keep tapping it to, to jump further. And by the way, if you use a Bluetooth keyboard when you play it, it is not going to work. Really? It's just not going to work. Oh, yeah, the because of the, the, the yeah. lag. Number 11, Dragon's Lair. 
I saw this game at timeout and I was mesmerized by it. This was a oh, I see what he did there. Yeah. He used the word mesmerized, and what's Pac Land based on? Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, the cartoon in which like, yeah, the, 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 the ghost monster's boss was named mm-hmm. Mesmeron. This wasn't just a game made with pixels on screen, but something that looked more like an animated TV show. That really made the game very different from anything else I had seen or played before, and I was very curious. I was going to give it a try until I saw people trying to play it and lasting less than a minute. Heck, one guy couldn't even get past the entrance of the castle. So I decided I, that I would not spend my quarters on this game. Instead, I'd just watch others do so. And you know what? That was far more entertaining. Yeah. Game, yeah, no kidding. The game was just too unforgiving. I think the game's real title should have been Dirk's Nightmare. Uh, yeah, totally agree. I never played the arcade, and it wasn't until I got an Atari Jaguar that I bothered trying it. I figured it would just be the cost of the game, and I could just try it as many times as I could at home. Well, tried is all I did. I just did not have the patience to memorize every move so I could survive. I still have that version, but it hardly ever sees any action. Like my marriage. Um, whoa, hello. This game and the others it inspired were clever and unique when they were released, but they are just not fun to play. Yeah, I, I would agree. Pretty much all of those type of laser disc games are just not fun to play. Uh, Dragon yeah, Slayer, way, Space Age. If there's, if there's no other reason for you to watch season two of Stranger Things, the first episode of the, fir- of the second season yes. has a great moment with Dragon's Lair. But I have to agree with everything he has, he has said about that. It's more fun yep. to watch people play it. Uh, Dragon's Lair 2 looked totally insane. I don't know how anybody could remember all of the moves, let alone execute them in time. It seemed to be more of a pain in the ass than the original Dragon's Lair, but we can talk about that at a future time. Mm-hmm. And Astro Blaster. This is a game I saw for the first time as an arcade game a couple of years ago at Free Play Florida. I didn't even have a chance to play it there. My experience playing this game comes from the port made for the Atari 7800 by Bob D. Crescenzo, and that is one fantastic game. After watching some videos of the arcade game, I know that Bob created accurate port of the original down to even the sound effects. The arcade doesn't have sophisticated sounds, so reproducing them with the Tia chip on the 7800 was doable. I reviewed this game for the 7800 Homebrew Podcast, so I don't want to repeat too much. I'll just say this game is fun and challenging and leave it at that, and totally agree. I really like Astro Blaster. That's a fun game. So, Avalanche. This is a game I don't remember ever seeing in any arcade. I've not seen it at any retro event either, so I have to wonder how rare these are. I do know a home version of this game does exist for the RCA System 2. Ever heard of it? Yes, I do, actually, and it's a console. Everybody, when you're talking about obscure consoles, uh, people mention the Astrocade or the Fairchild Channel F, but hardly anybody does talk about the RCA System 2. Hmm. I'm kind of curious, because I know it exists, but I've, it's never entered my consciousness. Hmm. I do not know if it had the same name, but it, has, it does have similarities to the arcade game. It may be a homebrew title for the system. Having never played Avalanche in the arcade, I suppose the closest I've come to it has been play, by playing Activision's Kaboom on both my 2600 and 5200. Both of these versions are fun, but nothing replaces playing the game with a paddle controller. The 5200 version seems like a missed opportunity as the graphics could have been improved significantly, but they are pretty much just the same as in the 5200. Regardless, the game is just fun. The 2600 version has even been hacked into a variety of versions with different themes. These hacked versions have even better graphics. I own two of them. Ketchup Kaboom, a fast food version with burgers, fries, and other food items. And Santa's Helper, a Christmas-themed version where an elf is dropping Christmas trees, gifts, and toys. I also have a Halloween hack called Halloween 3, which you have to stop the evil, evil Conal Cochran from releasing the three deadly Halloween masks, Jack-O-Lantern, Witch, and Skull. Oh, good tie-in. <laughs> hmm. It's time. It's time for the big horror and giveaway. 
I wish I remembered the, the the whole text of that commercial from Halloween three season of the witch. That okay. If you're going to watch a movie on Halloween, Halloween 3 Season of the Witch has nothing to do with any of the other Halloween movies in that it's a totally different type of horror film. does not have Michael Myers in it other than a, a clip from the uh, from the movie which is seen on the TV as in, in a commercial. It's about a guy that makes masks that kills people and you have to watch this flashing pumpkin on Halloween evening and I guess he takes over the world. It is cheesy as hell, but oh, is it a fun movie. Does it have anything to do with the Donovan song from which it takes its title? No. Huh. Oh, yeah, it's that time of year when all the classic rock stations dig out that song and play it once a year. I don't even know the song. Yeah, it's because they only play it once a year. Oh, okay. So that's all for now, guys. Going to the final frontier. Gaming. Baby, Eugenio. There you go. There we go. So, Thank you, Eugenio. Oh, in an email, he has a link to the... Oh, he did link the froggy thing, and it's actually yeah. in a clip in the bottom of the email. That's nice. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to get... I, see, the thing is, I'm not a huge fan of Frogger, but man, I want to get that on a cartridge. I have a pokey chip waiting for it. So, um, I think that's all we had to uh, talk about with regards to feedback and... Nintendo, errata, news, yeah, and, recipes, uh, drinks. Yep. Should we talk about games? Yeah, let's talk about games. Do you like games? I like games. Do you like games? Yeah, me too. Oh, good. And that's the end of the episode. We like games. Dun, Bye. Dun, dun. Oh, or maybe you should talk about specific games. Oh, like what? Risk, Monopoly, Ooh. Scrabble. Ferg loves Scrabble. Oh, yeah. Yes, he does. Yes. I was thinking about playing it the other night, but then I'm like, the only words I can think of are like cat and boy. Oh, and man. And Eric Idle's book. He's talking about how he'd, he'd play uh, Scrabble with Keith Moon. Oh no! And like, and he said, he's like, yeah, here we are. We're coming up, with, coming up with these big words like corpuscular, and, and what does Keith put down? Cat. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So, hey, do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? What do you uh, want to do here? You know what? Um, I I really don't know. Either way, I'm just equally uncomfortable. So okay, well, I'll go first then. All right. That way, I can just sit back and listen to you for the end of the episode. Yeah. <sighs> What, you're not going to interact with me? No, 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 no. In fact, I might even take a nap during your part. Grrrd. I've... Don't tell Sean, but I've been doing that, and I've just never let him know before. So, yeah, let's talk about a game here. Let's talk about Huzzah! Space Encounters. Huzzah. Huzzah. It was released in August of 1980 by Bally Midway, and I'll tell you what... A fairly simple game, but the more I looked into it, the more interesting stuff I found out. Not necessarily about the game, but about the creator. Well, do tell. But uh, let's talk about the game first. I ah. think it was released in two different cabinets, a cabaret and a full-size uh, machine. Uh, the cabaret had a joystick, but the full-size had a flight yoke, uh, similar in concept to what was on uh, Atari's Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, uh, Return of the Jedi, and Firefox except a little more primitive. And uh, what you are is you're in this trench on a planet, a space station, or whatever, and uh, you're just shooting down aliens that come into the trench and scoring points. Every now and then, uh, there, there are like four or five different kinds of, of enemies. You have basically rockets, which are worth 20 points, Klingon ships, which are like 30. Uh, you get these ships that are look like an elongated space invaders with, invader, which is worth 40 points. And you get a ship that looks like your ship from the game Vanguard, which is like 50 points. And then, of course, after you shoot one, unlike most games where you shoot an enemy that it um, disappears, no, 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 it turns into debris. And you have to either avoid the debris or shoot it. And from what I can tell, 
if you shoot the debris, you get the same amount of points as it were if it were the enemy. So if you destroy the uh, the Klingon-looking vessel for 30 points, if you destroy the, de- the debris from that, you get another 30 points. Hmm. So uh, it's worth your while to, des- to destroy those for that and, you know, yeah. to not lose a life. There's also a saucer that comes out every now and often. It's actually two of them come out at a time. They're worth 250 points each. And if you shoot it, a target pops up in the trench, and you can shoot the target for a rapidly decreasing number of points. It starts at 500 and goes down 100 points every so often. And from what I can tell, the target disappears if it reaches 200 points. Oh, and as far as the controls go, one thing I forgot to mention, and we're talking about points too, so this uh, this fits right in. The higher up in the trench you go... the the faster the game goes, like the enemies will be faster, and the, uh, the oh yeah, and the the way that you flying through the trench looks goes faster, and uh, there's also a bonus. There's a speed bonus at the top of the screen, and that gets added onto your score after you lose your life. Now, one thing with this game is by default you get 60 seconds of unlimited play, kind of like Spy Hunter, where you get unlimited play for a, a certain amount of time. Uh, and it gives you time to build up points to earn an extra life. After the 60 seconds are up, the next hit kills you. However, you do get bonus points. There's many different selectable levels. And I noticed something weird, and so I had to research three something different... Something weird. Yeah. So I had to research three different uh, dip switch settings. Now, first of all... You're you... a dip switch setting. Oh, well, I'm going to take my space encounters and go home. Wow, that was improv. So what happens, first of all, you put your coin in the machine, and it will say you have credit and then the number one in a square. You can't start the game right away, though. You, you, have, you pull the trigger to start, but what happens is you have to wait for the screen to change to say, pull trigger to start. Now, when you put your token quarter in or whatever, it'll tell you how many points until your free life. And, and the dip switches has many different settings, 2,000, 4,000, 8,000. 4,000, 8,000, 16,000, or 5,000, 10,000, or 20,000. I have that written down wrong in my notes. Let's just change that, even though nobody will see this. However, I noticed something weird when I was playing this. I've been, I've been playing it. I've been playing this a lot the last couple of weeks, and I just noticed it today. The default setting is 4,000, 8,000, 16,000. Oh, really? But I looked, and that's what it says on the screen, and that's what it says in the dip switch settings, and it, what's huh. what it says in the manual. Now, it says it on the screen, so this isn't like something I'm making up, but I, I was paying attention. After I noticed this anomaly the first time, I decided to put cheats on to play the game. Uh, this is one game where I actually played it more without the cheats on than with uh, up until today. And I noticed this. Even though the game says 4,000, 8,000, 16,000, it actually awards the bonus ship at 3,000, 7,000, and 13,000. Really? And I'm wondering, I wonder if this is a fluke, if there's something wrong. So I decided to check out two other dip switch settings, the 2,000, 4,000, 8,000, and the 5,000, 10,000, 20,000. The 2,000, 4,000, 8,000 setting awards your ships at 1,500, 3,500, and 6,700. And the 5, 10, 20 gives you your free ships at 3,500, 8,000, and 16,800. Are you sure this was, you didn't have any bonus points built up that it might have factored in? No, because the bonus huh. points don't get awarded until after the game is over. Isn't there like an ongoing tally though? Yeah, but the the ongoing tally again. Oh, you mean maybe it takes that into account? That's what I'm thinking. Oh, you know what? It might. I didn't think about that, but it could. The reason I didn't think about that though is because it doesn't add those points onto your score until the very end. 
for your total. So maybe it does take them both into account. Okay, I'm definitely going to check that. You might hmm. be right on that. You yeah, might because be what's right. interesting is, uh, I know I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but Twin Galaxies says that the default dip switch settings are 2,000, 4,000, 8,000. When I loaded it up in MAME, it was 4, 8, and 16. Hmm. So they might be right. I don't know. But I played the 4, 8, 16, and it awarded it 3, 7, and 13. The only thing is, is that when I was doing it the one time, I don't think I had 3,000. I'm going to check that again. I'm going to check that again. Hmm. But I still found that very, very interesting. That would be huh. weird if it does count the bonus points in with when it awards. You know why they might do, might do that, though? Let's say like you have, you're on the 4, 8, 16 setting. At the end of the game, when you lose your last ship, you have 3,900 points. If you mm-hmm. add your speed bonus to that, it would award you enough points to get the free ship. And maybe the machine doesn't know what to do with that. So maybe that's factoring that in while during the play. It um, prevents that from happening. See what I'm saying? That's just weird. But that is, I think we'll look into that again. I'm not necessarily saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's weird. It is weird. Here's a thing of note. Uh, I was looking because this game had, apparently has only one designer and programmer. And that guy is Dave Needle. He has two other arcade games to his name. Change Lanes, which is a 3D racing game that he designed and programmed for uh, Taito America, which I played that a little bit tonight. I can take it or leave it. And the other arcade game he's known for is Cube Quest. Oh. Which is a Laserdisc game, which also has uh, 3D polygon graphics in it as well. Man, I want to play that so bad. I have played it in emulation. Uh, he's one. He's an additional engineer for it. Really? What railroad? Ah, I see what you did there. He was also, and this is interesting, he was also the co-creator of, uh, he was one of the original Im- engineers of the Commodore Amiga, and he was the co-creator of the 3DO and the Atari Lynx. Hmm. And I was just doing some research. He's got a Wikipedia page, which I got some of the information from. But um, here's an article I saw on the Golden Age Arcade Historian blog. It's all in color for a quarter.blogspot.com. This is from 2012, where he did an interview. Link in the show notes. Link in the show notes. It's an interesting article. It's about a game he did, a Star Trek trading game that he did. But it's also got a little other uh, bits of interesting things here. He built an early Pong game in an attache case in his bedroom before Atari's Pong came out. Uh, He also built one of the earliest uh, gun games. Now, the attache case, was there a purpose for that, or is that just what he happened to have available? I don't know. It doesn't go into detail on it. It just This is just okay. bullet points in this article. Because ha- was it Qbert that was kind of built that same way for demo purposes to take around to shows? It could be. I think it was Qbert. After seeing the game Computer Space in a Long Beach arcade, he built a baseball game. Him and a friend bluffed their way into an Odyssey demo and once again made another game in a briefcase. In this day and age, a game in a briefcase like that, if you tried to take that onto an airplane with you... Um, you're going to get beat within an inch of your life. The next game he did came after he got a job as a civilian contractor on the, I believe, air, is it aircraft carrier battleship, the USS Enterprise. You see, and this is uh, from the interview here. So I volunteered for work on the USS Enterprise for the Navy. So I'm going to spend the next nine months at sea. And what am I doing in my spare time? Once again, I'm building another game in an attache case. <laughs> this time it's a multi-game game. It has a version of Breakout. It's got a couple of different kinds of pawn games. It's got a maze game. 
There was no software. It was entirely hardware-driven and grew to two attaché cases with cables that connected them on the bottom. And one of them was the power supply and all the joysticks and stuff. The other one was this giant pile of wire-wrapped boards. So that's what I did in my spare time. I only made one of them. I never turned it into a business. What a jerk I am. <laughs> and then he and a partner built a cocktail table multi-game arcade game for Barn Alameda, California, around 74. The rest of the article... Uh, goes on about the uh, about the trading game. I'm not going to read it, but um, I'm going to read the last uh, last paragraph here or portion of it. The trio Star Trek game, which would there's three people involved in the project, uh, which was probably created around 77 or 78, had another feature which appealed to fans of the series. Uh, okay, uh, their trading game was so popular, the local TV station got wind of it, and designers were asked to appear on Bob Wilkins' Creature Features, a Sacramento area late night show featuring horror movies and hosted by Bob Wilkins. Duh. who also interviewed celebrities, the most famous being Christopher Lee. The next day, Needle and his friends were recognized in the streets, but even when, but even more importantly, the segment had brought them to the attention of Bailey Midway, who soon contacted them about creating a game under contract. With the Bailey contract in hand, Needle and crew set about work on a game that would eventually see light as Space Encounters, and Needle was finally able to turn his hobby into a profession. And there is a little, uh, a little side note here. It's got a link to a little further thing. Your subscript, postscript. The group actually... Uh, Wilkins' show is said to have persuaded a young fan named George Lucas to begin making science fiction movies. Huh. So, there you go. Uh, very interesting article. It's not very long. It's it's, it's fairly short. But um, a lot of interesting uh, history. A lot, of, like, yeah. a lot of interesting backstory behind this really simple black and white game. I don't know if it's black and white or it has a little color. It's hard to tell with the in emulation. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking it is absolutely I, black and white. I'm pretty sure it way. is. But um there you go. So uh Sean. Yeah. Do we have any scores for the game? Um yeah. Yeah, yeah, there are definitely scores for the game. Orcade.com is uh, by the way, both uh Twin Galaxies and Orcade.com agree on the settings being at 24,800 I'm sorry, 8,000 with a time of 45 with bonus enabled. So they're in sync that way. Orcade.com has John P. McAllister as their top scorer at 70,076. Twin Galaxies, however, their records show Robbie Lakeman as having the record 27,769, which was verified June 24th, 2012. By the way, J.P. McAllister's score happened at... uh, the 14th Annual Classics Championships at Fun Spot on June 3rd, 2012. So both of these records were very close together. In fact, I wonder if uh, Robbie Lakeman's Twin Galaxies record was set on the same day. And Could just, be. And it just might be. But then again, Orcade.com also shows Robbie Lakeman is scoring 30,837 on June 2nd, the day before John McAllister got his Does top it? score. That, that contest at Funspot, uh, isn't that live adjudicated by Twin Galaxies? I know Funspot and Twin Galaxies has a pretty close uh, working relationship. I, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't at know. The, at least it seems like they Well, the thing is, like, Robbie's Twin Galaxy scores was verified by DVD. Oh, interesting. It, then again, that, could, that entry could be incorrect. There have been inaccuracies on Twin Galaxies, people, like, typing the wrong thing. But mm-hmm. Well, um, still, I think... Kidding, those scores could possibly be doable, but I'm feeling it's going to take a while to get that far because it takes a while to get to ten thousand. Oh yeah, if you can yeah. Do that. It's a low. I think my high thing. score, uh, my high score in playing it was like around twelve thousand. Hmm. 
something in that neighborhood. But um, I like this game. I've always liked this. Now I can I know your answer to this. Where's the first place you've ever played it? Or Nowhere. You've ever seen it? Nowhere. <laughs> Where in my case it was the Hillcrest Movie Theater oh, really? in Crest Hill, Illinois. Yeah, huh. it was uh, right next to the Battle Zone machine. Huh. And as I remember calling that. And I've seen it from time to time. It's not that common of a game. I ha- couldn't find any information about how many units were produced or anything like that. But um, apparently the Route 66 arcade in Atlanta, Illinois has it. Yep. I was over on their website today and because um, it's the same guy that owns the arcade museum in uh, McLean, Illinois. The same guy runs it. They're like seven miles apart. But I couldn't find any mention of the Route 66 arcade, so I'm wondering if it's a, a still an ongoing concern. So I sent an email out, but I haven't heard anything back yet. Well, it's listed that. there on arcade.com, but who knows if that's up to Who knows if so. that's correct, right. So if they do have it, I do definitely want to get, make a trip. I, I'm telling you, Sean, we, you, you and me sometimes have to do a road trip just to hit those two places. I think that would be a great way to spend a day just going down there. Maybe we could hang out in Bloomington. Oh, that okay, sounds maybe exciting. It, Maybe it's not so much a way, great way to spend the day, but uh, as I, I think I mentioned in a previous episode, this, uh, the guy that runs this arcade has uh, not only one arcade-themed room with uh, video games in it, including arcade machines, actually in the room, but he has two, uh, ap- well, not rooms, but two apartments that uh, wow. he has on Airbnb. They're like 165 170 a night, uh, but you have... Uh, Home video games. You have a couple of arcade machines. Oh yeah, machines. I remember you talking about that before. Adam's Family Pinball, but that's a, that's a coin machine. Uh, the reason he does that is to reduce wear and tear on it. Yeah, uh, which totally understandable. But uh, so uh, it doesn't look yeah. like Fun Spot still has the game. Really? Yeah, it's not well, listed anymore. What's interesting is like if you do a search for Space Encounters on Orcade.com, the number it gives you is eight, but there are only six actual locations listed. So they're yeah, I, I know there are all kinds of problems with Orcade.com, and Doc keeps saying that they're going to be fixed, they're going to be fixed, but, you know. He's got a lot on his plate. I've I'm been amazed. saying the same thing does. about our website for yeah. over a year. I think that was at Grinker's Palace in yep. Idaho uh, has it, yep. apparently. Yep, in and the uh, Alakipa place, the Pinball PA. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Which, is, uh, which is a place that we definitely have to get to. I'd Maybe we should do a road trip there. That would be interesting. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, International Center for History of Electronic Games has they have a lot of obscure ones over there. So I got to try Morristown Game Vault sometime when I'm in New Jersey. I'll be in New Jersey for Thanksgiving, but not nearly enough time to do to. Nah, that's a shame. Yeah, but I have to say I really like this game. Um, so did I. I liked. I um, liked it. I believe the version I played originally was the full upright with the uh, with the with the steering controller or whatever. If you're emulating it, you play it with the uh, with with the mouse. Yeah, but, um, absolutely. This is you know it, it's a simple game, but it's it's a lot of fun. It really is. The only thing I don't like about this game is when you hit that target, it flashes the whole screen screen white, but that doesn't stop the play. So when you shoot that, if there's like a missile right above you, it doesn't stop the play. It, you can actually get your ship destroyed while that white flash is on the screen, and I've had that happen a few times. So if you're aiming for the target, try to aim for it in an area where, of the screen where you're less likely to get hit by debris or shots or enemy aliens. Because that's kind of cheap. But that's the only real cheap thing about this game. I love, first of all, your ship looks like a TIE fighter from Star Wars. Let's, let's be honest. This game is a ripoff of Star Wars. It's, it's like they saw Star Wars and like, hey, this would be a great game. Because your ship looks like a TIE fighter, you're 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 searching for a target, and you're in a trench. You know, 
I think, let me see. Um, One of the little touches in this game that I really loved is when you're in your little TIE fighter looking vehicle and you're, and you touch the edge of the trench, it kind of like rotates. It spins just a little bit when you hit the wall, like it's uh Hey, you don't want to touch that. And uh, I love the effect when you get shot by something. And it, your, your ship flies out of the trench. The trench kind of goes to the yeah. side or whatever, and it goes back in. That's something. It's, it's for what it's got. It's got some neat visual yeah. tricks. And going yeah. back on that Tie Fighters thing, this game Space Encounters kind of reminded me of Starhawk, which I play on the Vectrex from time to time. It's a Cinematronics arcade game. Mm-hmm. A lot of Cinematronics vector games are were ported to Vectrex. But it had a similar vibe, but also uh-huh. Starhawk, your ship is like a TIE fighter. So there had to be huh. something involving, like, there, there had to be some I kind of obsession with TIE fighters. Interesting. I will definitely have to play that. So, Sean, uh, what are you going to rate this game? Um, I am going to rate it. Well, thing is, I like Space Encounters, but I can't go higher than a three, at least at this moment. Because you haven't been able to check it out on an actual arcade machine. Yeah, I mean, I I have it's it's like a three that that could be pushed into four warning territory, but I, I don't feel right giving it a four at this point for my my own personal opinion. It's Fair got enough. some good gameplay. It's very enticing. You, it's one of these games that you want to keep playing over and over and over. It's like, oh, you know what? I can get higher than this. Oh yeah, I can get higher than this, and it'll get to the point where you're just gonna rage quit. It's a, it's a fun, simple game. Yeah. And the thing is, I've played it, and I've gotten... I've played it for a while in a sitting, and it's one of those games where you, th- you play it, and you think it's going to get repetitive because it just has so many gameplay elements. I mean, it, do- it doesn't have a lot of actual gameplay. But when I play it, I don't find myself, you know, getting bored with it. I don't find myself uh, finding it repetitive. Yeah. And I, I think that's a... a really telling for this game. Maybe I'm just looking at this through nostalgic eyes because I, like I said, I played this game back at the long lamented Hillcrest theater, but you know, it is what it is. I really, really like this. This game holds a special place in my heart. And I would say it's one of my five desert Island games, to be honest with you. Where are you going to plug it in on desert Island? Solar. Making solar cells out of a couple of coconuts. The professor's with me. Oh, okay. So I'm writing this game a five. Wow. Yeah, I, I really love this game. I just want to see a cabinet again. I just really want to see, because the cabinet isn't really much special to look at, to be perfectly honest. But it's just seeing the 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 handlebars, or in some machines it has like a, a, a Tron-type joystick on it. it. It's just a fun game. It's it's kind of like a, a warm cup of cocoa on a cold day. It's comforting. It, it's it's I a can comforting see game to me. It's familiar and fun, and it, I don't find it repetitive, but I can see where some people might find it repetitive. So I got to rate it a five. This is a comforting game to me. Hmm. I don't know. I, I can't think of any other way to put it. Oh, well, think harder. Oops, I pooped a little. Oh. Okay. Okay, now, great. I, I'll think more later. I got to change my pants. Oh, okay. Well, while you're doing that, why don't I introduce the uh, listeners to uh, Buck Rogers' Planet of Zoom? Huzzah! Huzzah, Buck Rogers Planet of Zoom. Zoom. Or as it's known as in Japan, Zoom 909. It was released in December 1982, uh, if you believe the various sources that are out there, by Sega Enterprises Limited. Although the uh, U.S. manual's copyright date is uh, 1983. So, either 82, 83, whatever. Oh, speaking of Sega Enterprises Limited, uh, remember 
uh, when I, I was out in California in the first episode we recorded, when I got back, I was talking about how I didn't have enough time to go to Luna Yeah, or it was too far away. Cause it was like a 20 minute drive and I didn't feel like dealing with that. Um, well, I saw Sega Enterprises address on the Buck Rogers manual. So I looked it up to see if it was, if that was anywhere near Luna and I, and I was going to be like, oh man, if, uh, does Ian know that? But no, it's nowhere near Luna. But here's the thing. Luna has two locations. I learned that Luna's other location is in the same neighborhood where my wife and I were spending our time in San Diego. I could have walked there from our hotel. Oh, you missed an opportunity. I missed an opportunity. But oh well, going back to uh, Buck Rogers' Planet of Zoom, Zoom 909 if you prefer, that game was programmed by Hideki Ishikawa. And I don't know exactly what this means, but there is a credit for security. Security by Masatoshi Mizunaga. What what kind of security? That sounds like a um, a firm of some sort. Security by the name. Okay, but why do you need security in a video game unless it's some kind of copy protection or something? You know know. what? That could be because Sega games were notorious for having copy protection, and some of the copy protection has produced problems later on. I think we touched on it in the Moonwalker episode, I believe. Yeah, like the suicide battery, as they called it. Well, I don't blame them because I believe Sega was hugely victimized by piracy in their early days because they were located in Japan and all their games were being knocked off by American pirates. And the pirates were successful because it was a lot cheaper for arcade operators to get games from their American counterparts rather than to have Sega ship them out. So security might be some kind of copy protection. That's what I'm wondering. It would make a lot of sense. Yeah. And uh, there were two different types of arcade cabinet that uh, Planet of Zoom had. There was the upright cabinet and a cockpit cabinet. I don't know if I've ever seen the cockpit. I know I've seen the upright in several places. Yeah, I've definitely seen the upright. And uh, you, you got a control panel that has a trigger joystick, and uh, it's ambidextrous. The buttons are duplicated on the right and the left, so going from left to right, you have slow, fast, fire, trigger joystick, fire, fast, slow. All the buttons do pretty much what they say. There's a slow to slow you down, a fast to speed you up, fire to fire. And uh, Planet of Zoom is a rail shooter, which means you're constantly moving forward, and you just shoot everything that comes after you. It's kind of a 3D very colorful raster type game. And my thought while playing this was it's like space Harrier, except I don't hate it. (laughs) It looks a lot like space Harrier, but I think the control is a lot better. The thing is though, having said that, I know I'm getting way ahead of myself by talking about my opinion of it rather than the gameplay. There's not much to the gameplay at all. You just move around the screen and shoot stuff. Well, I mean, there's a little bit more to it than that. You got a, a sequence where you got to go through a trench avoiding different obstacles and ships. And then you got another scene when where you got to fly your ship through uh, between a couple of like poles. And then you got a couple of uh, space shooting screens, one with asteroids that look like, uh, it looked like some sort of a, the asteroids are orange and they look like something that you would get with sweet and sour chicken at a Chinese restaurant, uh, which you can shoot. And another one with gray asteroids in it that you can't shoot all the while, you know, enemies are approaching you. There's a, like kind of a generic-ish, scene on the planet of zoom where you're just shooting everybody then of course there's the the boss mothership or control ship or whatever they call it battle i mean there's a little variety to it a little little bit more variety to it than you're letting on yeah and it does repeat a lot like the phases don't last very long you get a countdown on the number of things that you have to shoot that are left 
And the thing is, you don't even really have to shoot all of them to advance to the next phase. It just gets you bonus points on the timer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I've mentioned before Planet of Zoom and without actually saying the, the name Buck Rogers. And it's quite simply, as far as I can tell, there is nothing Buck Rogers about this at all. I think all. the spaceship kind of looks like Buck Rogers' spaceship, but that's about it. There, none that's of the characters it, are in yeah. the game at all. Yeah, there are no characters. And I just hope they didn't pay a hell of a lot of money for the license. To Most of the home versions are the Buck Rogers title. And I'm thinking, man, if they're licensing Buck Rogers, they're not really doing anything with it. This game came out, when did you say? It was in... Uh... 82, 83. Okay, because there was a TV series, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, and that was 79 to 81. Yeah. So Buck Rogers mania was long gone by then. Oh, and speaking of which, Duck Dodgers. In the 25th and... In the 24th and, and a half, half century. century. Yes. Thing is, Buck Rogers really was in the 24th and a half century because the character Buck Rogers was a World War I vet. And uh, there was basically, long story short, he was uh, basically chronically suspended in a way from radioactive gas. And he woke up in 2419, which is the 24th and a half century. <laughs> and uh, the place where uh, the TV show uh, takes place is actually called New Chicago. Ah. And there was actually a theatrical movie before the TV series came out. And um, yes, he, he discovered where he what planet he was on because he was thrown into some sort of forbidden zone or whatever, and he came upon the gravesite of Mayor Daly, the original Mayor Daly. Yeah, the original. And a lot of people would love to see the great. Never mind, not going there. <laughs> uh, but you were mentioning about the the Duck Dodgers in the twenty fourth and a half century thing. What cartoon character was in that? Daffy Duck. Daffy Duck and Porky and it was Pig. Warner Brothers, right? Yep. And who did the voice of Daffy Duck? Mel Blank. Mel Blank. And guess who did a voice in the TV show? Gene Vanderpile. Exactly. No, Mel Blank. Oh, Mel Blank? Mel Blank oh, did the wow. voice of the robot Tweaky. Aha. Yeah, so there was a connection between the the parody and the, uh, the, well, not necessarily the source material, but the remake of the source material. And if only Atari had put out the game instead of Sega, that would have been more connection because Warner owned Atari. Indeed they did. Wow. I'd like to watch the show again. Man. I have no desire to watch the show myself. Oh, by the way, the difference between the upright and the cockpit uh -huh. is the cockpit, you have kind of a four-way speed instead of a two-way speed like the upright. Four-way? Four different levels of speed. I thought it was, um, you just had a, a faster button and a slower button, but there was a speed indicator on the bottom of the screen that goes up and down with it. There is. And you could just work with me here. Uh, uh, okay. Just, just work with my research. Say, Sean, I hear that there's only four levels of speed. Well, you're correct, because there are only four levels of speed. And the thing is, like, the reason that I'm so struggling with talking about this game is because there's really not much to talk about. I will read you exactly what it says in the manual. Everything to do with playing the game. Okay. And it's a heading called Game Concept, which is a very common heading in arcade manuals. Flying skills and targeting accuracy must be honed to a fine edge as you take command of Earth's last remaining hope of defense. Responsive eight-way joystick in hand, excitement is the name of the game as the Buck Rogers in all of us pilots a remote-controlled spacecraft through the planet of Zoom. Trademark. In the 25th century, Buck Rogers is confronted by a wicked warrior world, the planet of Zoom. It is a gargantuan, out-of-orbit world that devastates everything in its path and is ruled by an evil source ship. Buck Rogers' mission, they don't have an apostrophe by the way, to destroy the source ship and liberate the planet of Zoom before it reaches Earth. 
Equipped with a single shot or rapid fire neutron cannon and two level, upright or four level, cockpit speed control, you race your ship into and through heavily armed channels, through formidable smasher tunnels and around the towering spires of the cosmic city. You bank, dive, and climb in pursuit of bizarre alien ships and ground forces to reach the climactic seat. Oh, pardon me, climatic scene. <laughs> oh, so it's like cold or dreary? Yeah, it's 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 about the weather. It has Ooh. nothing to do with excitement or anything. Oh, I see. The climatic scene and primary target, the all-powerful enemy source ship. Fantastic gameplay graphics, great stereo sound effects, <laughs> intense <laughs> action, and unique player controls makes the... <sighs> what the hell is this? Compound subject, singular verb? No! Sorry. Uh, blah, 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 makes this versatile one- or two-player video game as super as the Buck Rogers hero it is named for, a dangling preposition. With three to six extra ships, operator selectable, your score mounts and rounds proceed until the loss of the last player ship. And that's all it tells you about the gameplay other than the scoring. And for the scoring, it has just black and white pictures of the things you can shoot and how many points they're worth. Like the mothership we were talking about, or mm-hmm. the source ship, as it were. Uh, you get 200 points for every piece that you blast away, and when you destroy the whole thing, you get 3,000 points. They have uh, to shoot off each of the four engines first, before then you yeah. then you shoot a uh, lava shot into the uh, the launching bay for the other ships. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit Bosconian in that regard. Yeah, in a way, actually, mm-hmm. isn't it? Let's see, there was what appears to be some kind of a mine, you get 100 points for shooting that. You get 200 points for shooting something else, uh, 300 for shooting what looks like a Star Wars droid of some kind, <laughs> 500 for shooting what looks like a space shuttle, 200 for shooting something else. To See, the, it it's not very detailed. You don't know what the hell you're shooting. <laughs> Even in 1982, 1983, I had better spelling and grammar than these yutzes. Well, to be they fair. They should have had me do it. It was originally a Japanese game, so whoever translated it might not have been familiar with the English language, so you got to cut them a little slack. Well, that is true. I mean, zero wing and everything. Yeah, exactly. So I'm willing to cut them some slack there. Yeah. There were home versions of Buck Rogers' Planet of Zoom. Uh, for video game consoles, there was the 2600, 5200 for the Atari. I loved the, the 2600 version, even though it's not a favorite of many people. I will grant them that the collision detection isn't on it. It isn't isn't that good on it, and it is the it graphically isn't really a whole lot to to write home about. But I loved the game. I could score pretty good on it. Uh, I remember once if you hit level ten on the twenty six hundred Buck Rogers Planet of Zoom, uh, at the beginning of every level it says level and then the in the level number and it like scrolls down the screen as zero one two three four so on and so forth. If you make it to level ten, it says level B is either eight C or B C. And I wrote to actually wrote to Sega about that, asking if that was like a programmer's initials or some sort of a secret mm-hmm. message or whatever. And they wrote me back, <laughs> actually, as a kid, really about that. They're like, "Oh, we're not we, we're not aware of any secret message in the game, but we're uh, we're happy that you're so involved with the game. Here, have a free <laughs> Buck Rogers Planet of Zoom uh, box art poster." Like, oh wow, <laughs> so that's cool. Uh, I wish I would have wish I would have held on to that poster. That would have been an awesome collectible to have. Oh but, man, uh, yeah, that's uh, yeah. You can tell I, I liked that version of the game. So, hey, continue. All right. Um, do I have anything? Oh, yeah. I have anything else. So, yeah. Atari 2600, ColecoVision, and Sega SG-1000. And the Sega SG-1000 was actually titled Zoom 909. Now, as far as that goes, 
the Sega SG-1000 version of the game is weird. Because it's 3D for like the first couple scenes, but then it cuts to an overhead sequence. And instead of having a timer, it's a fuel gauge, which I think actually all of the home versions call it a fuel gauge instead of a timer. Hmm. The thing with that is, in the SG-1000 version, you have to pick up fuel capsules, whereas in the other games, you just have to make beat the level before your fuel runs out. And then, like I said, there's an overhead view, which I've tried playing this on uh, my Sega Master System because most SG-1000 games will play on it because they're similar hardware. It's just the Master System is uh, more upgraded. But uh, the controls on that overhead sequence are just nearly impossible. I could really not get past it. So I watched a uh, Let's Play of it, and I couldn't... One of, there, there are two trench screens in this one. One where there's enemies flying toward you. One where there's, like, walls coming to you. And you got to go, and there'll be an opening in the wall, like either in the middle, on the right, or on the left, and you have to line up to whichever side it is. I bring that up because I'm going to cut for a second here to the Coleco Adam version of this. This was the pack-in game for the Coleco Adam computer. Oh, really? Yes, it was. Yeah. Uh, and just like the other games that were released for it, uh, Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., and Zaxxon, uh, well, with Zaxxon being the only one where it was uh, released, there were two additional sequences on the Atom version. One is where you're actually going through buildings that uh, crop up every now and then. By the way, on the screens with the walls and the uh, with the towers that you have to go through, every time you make it past a wall or go between two of the towers in the arcade game and on any other version, it counts as destroying an enemy. It counts toward your UFO count. Ah, so uh, I did know. not notice that. So the faster you go the, the, on those screens, the more likely it is you'll get to that account. Just watch for enemies coming your way. But at any rate, on the Atom, you had this sequence where you're going through these buildings. And then after you destroy the mothership, you actually fly into the mothership and destroy a whole bunch of bizarre looking enemies. And uh, eventually your ship comes up to these two energy bars and they encircle your ship and they change the color. And then you move on to the next round. So uh, I do like the Atom version, but uh, the thing with the ColecoVision version, since the ColecoVision version and the ColecoVision slash Atom version and the SG-1000 are the only home versions that I am aware that actually have the trench screens at all. And pretty much every other version I played just have the screen where you're going through the towers, uh, a space sequence, and then the mothership or the source ship. It cuts out all of the other sequences, which is kind of lame. So only the Coleco, like I said, ColecoVision, Atom version have the trench, both trench sequences. That includes the one with the walls. The problem I have is on the SG-1000, the wall is a solid color, and it's easier to tell where the, the opening in the wall is as it gets closer to you, and it actually moves rather smoothly. On the Atom version, the wall has like these diamond patterns all over it. it and when it's in the distance, it looks like the wall is whole. And it, until it gets like a step closer to you, and then you can see it. And it's really kind of kind of lame they couldn't have made it. But the thing is, the uh, on the ColecoVision Atom version, the wall kind of jumps. It's like choppy animation. But the thing is, when you're playing something in 3D, and say it's got a pattern in it, you know, you expect that the pattern to start out small and then get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as it comes toward you, right? You know, like the effect of 3D, like a sign down the road isn't the same size in the distance as it is as it is close to you. On the Atom version, it's got these diamonds on it, but they don't start small. They start out at full size, and as you get closer, they just add another row of diamonds to it huh. to simulate the illusion of, of the wall coming toward you. And I thought that was kind of lame. They could have done better. The SG-1000 version handled the walls better, I thought. But um, from what video I've seen of it, like I said, I couldn't get past the overhead version. 
overhead screen on SD-1000. But those are my thoughts on the home versions. So I do like the uh, the Coleco version better because you can actually get through the... It's easier to get through around a, a versus the SG-1000 where I still don't know how to get past that overhead screen. I don't even know why they have it. It doesn't make sense. But remember, SG-1000 is Zoom 909. However, the Zoom 909 arcade game doesn't have an overhead screen either. So there you go. Yeah. I'm done with my little rant. Good. And uh, where was it? Oh, yeah. There are the other computer versions. There's the Atari 8-bit had it. Commodore VIC-20 and 64, Apple II, Sinclair ZX Spectrum, Texas Instruments 99.4A. There were two versions for the PC. There was one you ran in MS-DOS and one that you just booted right into. There was a version for MSX, but that was under the title Zoom 909. And there was a version for Amstrad CPC that was actually called 3D Fight, which is kind of a generic title, if you ask me. In fact, if you don't ask me, that's kind of a generic title, 3D Fight. So... Yeah. Uh, J- Jimmy, um, the G, where did you first see and or play Buck Rogers, Planet of Zoom, or Zoom 909? I first played Buck Rogers, Planet of Zoom at Putt-Putt Golf and Games. Putt-Putt Golf and Games, ooh. Well, I remember one time after I had played it, must have been on a school trip to uh, Marriott's Great America, which... Ah, yes. That's an interesting thing there, because the TV show was actually started by Mormon investors, uh, just like Battlestar Galactica was, and uh, Marriott was a Mormon-run hotel-slash-amusement park chain. So, take that Is for what Is it still Mormon-run? Because I'm actually staying at a Marriott. In, uh... I think it might be. Huh. Uh, just, you know how hotels will have a Bible in the drawer when you open it? Yeah. When you go to the hotel... Uh, open the drawer and see if there's a Book of Mormon. That should answer probably oh, your question. there you go. Probably answer your huh. question. But I thought that was an interesting another connection. My uncle's a Mormon elder. I wonder if he can get me a discount. Ooh, never know till you try. Yeah. But um, I thought that was another interesting connection between, uh, you know, there. But anyway, I was there one time and I was talking to a kid and I was playing Frontline and he goes, oh. Uh, and he was like, oh, I see you're playing uh, Frontline. I like that game. I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know. I can't get into this. I like Buck Rogers better. He goes, oh, I don't like Buck Rogers. So don't ask me how I remember that conversation. So inconsequential. That's the first uh, place, actually, I played Congo Bongo, now that I think about it, which is a game uh, you got to talk about. Yeah. Uh, I never actually played Buck Rogers in an arcade, but I definitely saw it. I'm pretty darn sure I saw it at the Aladdin's Castle at uh, Lincoln Mall. And the thing is, I never cared much for sci-fi. So sci-fi titles didn't really, like, like titles that were licensed from sci-fi series didn't really grab my attention so much. I mean, Star Wars was okay. I was, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm a fan, but I've seen all the non-prequel Star Wars movies and liked them. And, uh, and I liked the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, and which shows you right away that I'm not a Star Trek fan because fans hate the J.J. Abrams Star Trek. <laughs> But just sci-fi just never really grabbed my attention. So yeah, I never, I never had a desire to play it. Huh. But having said that, like I said in the beginning of this segment, I found Planet of Zoom to be basically Space Harrier, except that I didn't hate it. I hated Space Harrier. I must slightly disagree with you there, because I actually kind of, kind of liked Space Harrier, but not a huge fan. But I do kind of like it. But I really do like this one. I like, I love the visuals in this game. This game has some excellent scaling, and it use, it's obviously using earlier hardware than Space Harrier. And actually, I think it's uh, there's another uh, Sega game called Galaxy Force, which I think uses the same hardware as this one, which that's a game I've actually seen on the Master System, 
and uh, other home consoles, but I've never seen in the arcade until I think Galloping Ghost has it. Yeah. But I think the the visuals in this game are amazing, especially in the screen with, um, well, really, anything that comes close, uh, you know, as the, the scaling is really, really smooth. The game is extremely colorful. And um, it's it's amazing how nice this game looks for how early yeah a game it is. Oh, indeed. I mean, you, you didn't really see any of anything else like this uh, as colorful as this around this time. Uh, well, maybe not colorful, but colorful and detailed. And this is a really nice game to look at, and I can see where this game is divisive because the gameplay maybe isn't the greatest in the world, but you know I enjoy it. I think more people. I think this is this game suffers from. A, a kind of uh, a, a stigma that's associated that that can be tied back to 2600 Pac-Man. Whereas people say that if it wasn't for the Pac-Man name, the 2600 Pac-Man would be a good game. I think if you remove the name Buck Rogers from this game, because really, let's be honest, Buck Rogers, there's no references in game to Buck nope. Rogers as at, at all. If oh, you remove dude. the name Buck Rogers from it and maybe just call it Zoom 909 or something, then I think this game may may have had a little bit more of a positive uh, reception from uh, arcade goers. All right, I got to backtrack a little bit. Uh, you mentioned the 2600 Pac-Man. What was people's big complaint about Pac-Man? Or what, what was the one thing that could have made it different? Uh, if the maze was the same color as the arcade? What colors were the maze? Uh, black and blue in the arcade. On the home, it was green and blue, or, uh, uh, orange and blue. Orange and blue. All right. Now I got a question. This is prompted because Ferg recently talked about Kangaroo for the twenty six hundred on his podcast. Oh, I think I know where you're going. What with are the this. back? What are the colors of the uh, the screen on the, the twenty six hundred Kangaroo? Orange and blue. Orange and blue. What about the arcade version? Brown and black. Yeah, like black background and everything. Yeah. Nobody says squat about Kangaroo for that. So that's WT frack people. But I think the difference though is that the the screen layouts are identical and the gameplay is uh, closer to the arcade than 2600 Pac-Man was. It's missing the punchy part, though. The punchy part? Where you got to punch down a stack of monkeys. Oh, yeah, the fourth screen. Yeah, it suffers from fourth screen Which is screen my favorite part. Well, it's the only part of Kangaroo I like. I do love that screen in the game. But anyway, sorry to go tangent. off on that tangent. But hey, uh, did we give our continue ratings yet? Sorry. No, but did we talk about high scores? No. Should we? I think we probably should. All right, so Twin Galaxies shows Kelly Keenan as having the top score at a million sixteen thousand four hundred ninety-five back on, uh, well, verified on April twelfth, nineteen eighty-four by referee. In fact, there are five scores listed on Twin Galaxies. They're all from nineteen eighty-five or earlier, so nobody's been able to replicate that since. But it might be that this is a surprisingly rare game. I didn't think it was rare, but. According to Orcade.com, only three locations have it. Uh, Pinball PA in Alakeepa, Pennsylvania. Galloping Ghost here in uh, the Chicago area, Brookfield to be specific. And Daytona Arcade Museum in Daytona Beach, Florida. Which I have never heard of until right now. But Orcade.com is... All right, I'm I'm just going to have you guess this. The uh, Orcade.com high score is 192,278. Accomplished recently, August 17th, 2018, at Galloping Ghost. Gee. I'll give you one guess as to who got it. James White? James White. Gee, there's a I know, shocker. shock. I think, I think I read about that recently, actually. He went through the whole sequence of screens like three times or something to get that score. Yeah. It must have been more than that because it's not really hard to go through the whole sequence. Well, that's true. It's not a terribly high-scoring game either. 
No, no, which makes me wonder, how long did uh, Kelly Keenan play the damn thing? Mm-hmm. Huh. But anyway, um, might as well talk about my rating. I I will give Buck Rogers Planet of Zoom slash Zoom 9, whatever the hell you want to call it, three continues. It's not going to be a go-to game for me. I'm not going to see it and say, ooh, I must play it. Maybe I'll say, yeah, you might as well, I might as well try it, but. I'm going to give this game a four. Okay. I, I mean, do, it's a, I it's a like fine, it. it's a fine game. Yeah, Buck Rogers I, I like is a fine it. Game. It, it. It entertains me. Again, it's not a go-to, but I will play it uh, every now and then. And if you're not a Buck Rogers fan, that will have absolutely no effect on your enjoyment of the that game. That is true. I do have to say, one. I, I remember another conversation I had with this game. This one was with a schoolmate. We were talking about video games, and he's like, oh, have you seen this game, Buck Rogers? And I'm like, no. And he goes, yeah, you go through all this, 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 and at the end... And then he takes out his notebook and opens opens it up and grabs his pencil, pen, whatever, and he starts drawing the source ship. You know, he draws a rectangle with another rectangle in it and four circles on the corner. And then he goes, "Yeah, what, what you got to do is you got to destroy the engines first. And he crosses off the engines, and then you got to shoot into the middle of the ship. And then he draws like little lasers going into the middle of the ship. And like, yeah, and then you blow it up at the end of the the round, and it's a really fun game. And I'm like, oh wow, I got to play this. Where's it at? Oh yeah, it's over at Putt Putt. I'm like, oh wow, awesome. I'm going to play it. So." <laughs> I thought, it's amazing the things you remember when you're 50. Huh. You seem to be much remembering a lot more now that you're 50. Um, anyway, um, I guess that's, that's it. That's our uh, examination of, well, as my notes say, Buck Rogers Planet Foe Zoom and Space Encounters. Uh-huh. And so, yeah. We should probably reveal the theme. Yeah, we probably should. Yeah, so and you wanna... it seems to me, I just realized this, I think I say that same thing every week. We probably should reveal the theme or some variation thereof. I don't say yeah. like, hey, Jack, theme this shit or something like that, you know. Hmm. Let's theme this. These are games that are obviously inspired by the Star Wars Trench sequence. I mean, there's just no other uh, way around it. Uh, uh-huh. I mean, Space Encounters is obviously closer to the Star Wars Trench scene. Especially with the TIE Fighter. Yeah, that, that, that's obviously a blatant ripoff of Star Wars. Buck Rogers, not as much. Almost makes me wonder if they tried to get a Star Wars license but couldn't. Hmm, that's a thought. So, I don't know, but um, the trench sequence is obviously a blatant Star Wars ripoff. There's there's yeah. no way it couldn't be. And let's be honest, after seeing that, when it comes to your video game hardware from back then, a trench like that is actually kind of easy to create in uh, in whatever graphics you're working in. I do remember, actually, I programmed in BASIC on the Apple II back, way back when, when I was learning computers and this is thanks to the Coleco Atom that I learned uh, <laughs> learned AppleSoft Basic because Smart Basic on it was virtually the same. That huh. uh, I actually designed a, a, a graphic of the trench in oh, Star cool. Wars uh, scrolling. It was actually not that difficult to do. Yeah, I'm a programmer for a living. That's still more than what I can do. Well, the thing is, back then, I basic programming language and stuff like that, you had more control over graphics than yeah, you do now. Yeah, that's true. Which is even then, I still sad. wouldn't have been able to do that because I always sucked at graphics. I, I think it would have been a lot easier because you just like plot point X and plot whatever, draw a line between them, stuff like that. I mean, I, mm. I think it would have been a lot easier. That's one reason why I've been actually kind of toying with the the logo programming language off and on recently because I miss that kind of control over huh. the graphics. You can hmm. still download it actually. Oh, fascinating! Yeah, so I never used logo. I love logo. It's so easy to learn. Anyway, I digress. Yes, you do very much. Yeah, there we go. So the games that we're going to discuss in episode 86 will be announced in just a moment, because first, 
we have some people we have to thank for making this episode possible. And this episode has been underwritten by SNM Family Outlet. Yes, dear SNM Family. And special thanks goes to Michael D'Angelo, Nate Lockhart, New Balance Stores Phoenix, Art Guglielmo, Atari Bytes Podcast, D. Alex, Greg Polander, Jonas Rulo, Keith Sheehan, Kyle Etter, PJ Steele, Richard Grounds, Richard Valdez, Rory the Charles Coleman, Steve Steiner, Tim Foley, and the Underground Retrocade. Thank you to all of you for being Patreon sponsors via Patreon. And Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Um, yeah, that's uh, whom we have to thank. And of course, as always, thanks to our friend Steve Tui. Thank you, Steve Arino. Over at Tuiville, T-O-U-H-Y-V-I-L-L-E dot com. So, um, Jimmy the G, about what are we going to be talking about next episode? Talk about your baby. Yeah, we'll be talking about Marvel Madness and Domino Man in the next episode of Pie Factory Podcast. Where you always save more money. Till then, 588-2300. See you next time. Hudson 327 Pie Factory Podcast. Ah, oh man, how many people are going to get that? Even people who are from here. None. Ha ha. <laughs> Jimmy G, Sean, Pie Factory Podcast. And uh, this is Sean bidding you all Utah Jazz. This episode of the Pie Factory Podcast was edited and produced by Hyde St. Pierre. Opening and closing theme is the Happy L composed by Sean Courtney. Love theme from Addenda and Arata was composed by Jim Goble. Follow the Pie Factory podcast online via Facebook, on Twitter at Pie Factory PFP, or on piefactorypodcast.com. Support the show at patreon.com slash piefactorypodcast. I'm only going to say happy things.